Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Jane Richards, and today I'm speaking with Brandon T. Jett about his book, Race, Crime and Policing in the Jim Crow South, African Americans and Law Enforcement in Birmingham, Memphis and New Orleans, 1920 to 1945. It was published by Louisiana State University Press 2021. Now, just before we dive in, I just want to tell you a little bit about Professor Jett. So he's a professor of history at Florida Southwestern State College. He's an award-winning scholar, writer, and teacher of American history and crime, violence, and criminal justice in the U.S. He's the author of the book we're going to talk about today, Race, Crime, and Policing in the Jim Crow South, and his work has been featured in numerous venues, including the Washington Post and News Press. And he's also a host for the New Books Network podcast channel, New Books in the American South. So after this episode, you can go and listen to him there. Anyway, um, Professor Brandon Jack, welcome to the show. Yeah, Jane, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Cool. Yeah, that's, it's great. Um, I'm super excited. Um, so, yeah, just to get us started, can you tell me just a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Race, Crime and Policing in the Jim Crow South? Yeah, uh, I, I am, you know, originally from Texas. I grew up in the suburbs of Houston, and I originally went to my undergraduate program. I wanted to be a lawyer. I'd wanted to be a lawyer my entire life, um, or at least as long as I can remember, probably not when I was five. And uh, when I got to the point where I was going to law schools to see what they were all about, I found myself really uninspired. Uh, I thought this just seems really cutthroat. Uh, It doesn't seem like people are here for the right reasons. I wanted to be this lawyer that was a public defender and someone who would fight the good fight and use the law to bring about some semblance of justice. And that just didn't really seem like that's what a lot of the law schools I was um, talking to were interested in. And one of my goals was to be a teacher anyway. So I wanted to go to law school, maybe practice for a while and then um, go teach. And so I started thinking, well, what can I do other than go to law school to kind of get to the same space. And so I really enjoyed my history classes and I decided to go get a master's and see if it was something I wanted to pursue at the PhD level. And that's where I really uh, was first introduced to the idea of studying the history of legal processes and criminal justice um, and the roles that criminal justice institutions played in perpetuating the systems of inequality, um, at least in the case of my area of focus, uh, the Jim Crow South. So that's really where it all all kind of emerged from, at least this kind of broader interest in race and criminal justice uh, in the U.S. South. So let's just jump right in because you mentioned your research is about the Jim Crow South and institutions of criminal justice and how laws um, can perpetuate inequality. So... To open the book, you write that policing in the South was part of decades-long efforts by Southern law enforcement to maintain the Jim Crow racial hierarchy through violence and intimidation of African Americans. Can you explain this? Yeah, so a lot of my my early studies at the master's level um, focused on 
lynching and racial violence. Um, and I was in Texas, so I studied a couple of counties in Texas and looked at the ways in which uh, local communities responded to instances of racial violence and lynching. And this really focused on like the 1890s, maybe the later 1880s up through uh, the 1920s. And when I got to the PhD program, um, I really began by looking at the ways in which like lynch violence and other kind of extreme forms of racial violence kind of worked in collaboration or conjunction with kind of lower level forms of violence, homicides, assaults, and the like. Um, and what I really became interested in is this idea that as as the number of, of lynchings or at least reported lynchings are declining in the early 20th century um, and into the 1920s in particular, uh, we also see this rise of formal institutions of criminal justice um, and the spread and expansion of these formal institutions. And by formal institutions, I mean like the police, um, jails, prisons, um, the increased role of prosecutors and things like that. And, and so it seemed to me that there was some, some relationship between this decline in extra-legal forms of violence, um, at least the reporting of extra-legal forms of violence, uh, and the rise of these more formal institutions of criminal justice. And so when you begin to look um, at, at the ways in which people are talking about the police in particular, which is what the focus of my book is, uh, a lot of it is about these concerns with, with the growing and, and, and rapidly um, expanding expanding urban areas in the South in particular, but this could be true uh, of Northern cities and Western cities in, in the United States as well. All of these people, hundreds of thousands of people flooding into these cities over the course of just a couple of decades in search of jobs and new opportunities, leaving um, the, the old kind of plantation South um, to try and, and find something new. But this causes a lot of concern for a lot of, of white Southerners in particular, um, but, but black Southerners too. How do you maintain some semblance of order in these massive cities uh, where people don't know each other in the same way that they would in a small rural town in, say, uh, the Mississippi Delta? Uh, and so I argue that that as we see this this decline in in lynching and extra legal forms of violence, we also see this rise of these formal institutions of of criminal justice, um, and and while while they they enforce laws, right, and these laws are being passed by largely white legislatures, um, and by by the early 20th century and into the mid 20th century, almost completely white legislatures in the South. Uh, it's the police officers' jobs to enforce those laws, so segregation laws, disenfranchisement laws, uh, and all of the other laws that are being passed to create this racial hierarchy that firmly places white people on on top of black people. Uh, but violence plays a part of all of this as well. It becomes easier uh, for white police officers to get away with incredibly horrific acts of violence against black residents uh, than it would be for a lynch mob to continue to engage in those types of violent interactions with African-Americans in the 1920s, 1930s, and into the 1940s. Lynching kind of falls out of favor. Um, lynching symbolizes chaos. Um, it symbolizes kind of um, an antiquated way of maintaining social control and order. And this is important for Southerners. Uh, it discourages investment in, in these southern cities and these southern states because investors don't want to put their money where it seems like mobs are running rampant and, and uh, there, there is no semblance uh, of order. So it really is the police uh, that, that pick up 
the, the, the role of policing African-Americans, maintaining order um, and, and abuse, violence um, and even deadly violence uh, is part and parcel of the police officer's tool set uh, to maintain that order. And so um, kind of bigger picture here, the ways in which violence was used repeatedly to maintain this system of inequality, this racial caste system that was created uh, in the Jim Crow period. Uh, it begins with, with extra legal violence um, in the 1880s, 1890s, and then in, in the early part of the 20th century. But as that begins to wane, we really see the police officers fill that role. Uh, and in fact, one of my, my um, next projects is going to look at violence um, in Memphis from 1917 to 1972. Uh, and Almost all acts of violence where a white person kills a black person, at least in the Memphis homicide reports, are police officers. Um, and so you really see the decline of kind of regular kind of non-authority figures taking the, 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 the role in using violence and it just transferring almost solely to the police departments. Now, that's really interesting. Um what I want to ask you about is you've sort of just alluded to it, but one thing that I found really interesting in the book is that the period you write in, police were sort of, they were, they were sort of a bit wild and not as regulated um, as one would imagine or um, perhaps it's because I'm outside the US, but they just seem to be a lot less sort of um, law and order and uh, predictability of the way the police's, police actually sort of governed and used violence. Can you talk a little bit more about what the institution of police and criminal justice looked like during this period? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. Um, in the South in particular, um, but I think you could, could broaden that out to the rest of the urbanizing United States. Uh, but in the South, the police are a relatively new institution. Um, in the United States, the police departments begin to appear in the mid-19th century. And in the South, they're pretty reticent to, to accept this new institution as, as a method of maintaining order. Um, but there are some, some iterations of what we would consider police departments appearing in some of the bigger cities like New Orleans. Um, but it really isn't until the, the early 20th century that we begin to see police departments become more widely adopted. Uh, and this, I think, argue is largely a consequence of cities growing rapidly. Um, and there is a need for some kind of new institution to come in and, and take control over maintaining order. Uh, and so they're looking to places like London, New York, um, Chicago, seeing that, that police departments are what they are incorporating there, and they kind of bring that into the South as well. Uh, but it's, it's, it's relatively haphazard. Um, they know what the institutions are. Initially, there's 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 no real requirements for who can be a police officer. It's it's a kind of political patronage position. If if your your political party and your political candidate wins office, then they might hire a bunch of police officers to kind of say thank you for for your support uh, in, in in the last election. So there's really no no requirements early on. Now they attempt to mitigate that through professionalization efforts, but it's never uh, as successful as maybe the proponents of police professionalization. Uh, would like. And so what, what you end up seeing is policing, not necessarily being a profession, uh, but it's kind of a job that people who in many cases are down on their luck and in some cases destitute um, find themselves in. And, and one of the things I, I, I argue, and I'm not the first person to do this, uh, is that this, this, this role of the police officer really becomes important for some of these white Southerners because by the time period I'm, I'm talking about and, and in the cities that I'm talking about, police forces are all white. So there are no black police officers um, from 1920 to 1945 in the cities that I'm looking at. 
it becomes this status symbol. Uh, these are destitute people. They are down on their luck. They don't have a lot of status in in the other kind of arenas of their life. But when they, they are handed that badge, they are handed that gun, uh, all of a sudden they have the legal authority to end someone's life, uh, to take that person and arrest them, to fundamentally re-alter the trajectory uh, of anybody's um, life. And, and this becomes particularly important when they engage with African-Americans because we know so much about the Jim Crow South was based on status, white people being firmly above because of these um, legal institutions and extra legal violence uh, above African-Americans. And so police officers uh, kind of have this, this heightened sense of authority um, when, when, again, they, they get that badge and get that gun. Uh, but there's no real training that goes along with it. Uh, they just kind of are handed these things and told, all right, go out and, and arrest people and make sure that, that no one's breaking the law uh, or no one is violating any of these social customs and norms um, that have been inculcated into Southern culture. Um, so policing is going through a transformation um, from the early 20th century to the late 20th century. And that's something that I also try to highlight uh, in my book. And that's why I focus on, on these decades. It's really this, this interesting period of transformation. Typically, when, when we think about Jim Crow criminal justice, like we hear about lynching and we hear about um, debt peonage and we hear about the like chain gangs and, and the prisons in, in the later part of the 19th century, maybe in the early 20th century. And then we just jump to like the Bull Connors of the world uh, where they are using these, these massive and militarized police forces to oppose civil rights activists uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. And what I wanted to look at is like, well, where did all this come from? And so what you see going on from 1920, 1930, and into the 1940s is the militarization of police forces um, in ways that will pay dividends for those conservative Southerners who want to maintain uh, the racial caste system in the 1950s and 1960s. So they're incorporating weapons, cars, automobiles, radios, um, telephones, uh, all in an effort to make policing, which is consistently undermanned in these growing cities, um, more present, more visible, and to their mind, more effective at maintaining the kind of uh, racial caste system that exists. So we've got this kind of dual trend taking place here. Policing is, is, is largely kind of done by non-professionals in the earlier part of the 20th century. And they're trying to change that over the course of, of, of the first half of, of the 20th century uh, with varying degrees of success. But at the same time, they're also incorporating more technology, more military grade weapons. Um, and the police forces are becoming something that we would all recognize today. These kind of robust departments with weapons, training, technology, um, and the like. So I think it's a really interesting period from a criminal justice perspective to just kind of see um, the changes that take place in police departments, because I think we have this misguided notion that police departments have always existed. And that's just fundamentally untrue. Um, and in the early part of the 20th century, they are they are kind of experimenting with what works, what doesn't work, uh, and how police forces can be the most effective at maintaining social control and order in these these rapidly growing cities. So let's talk about that, because this was one of the themes that came up in the book, that police did become more present, more visible and more effective. I'm wondering if we can delve into this a bit more. And can you tell me about how the police did this and what the impact was? Yeah, they, so they they become more visible, as I suggested uh, just a few minutes ago, because that's part of their their job. Um, you see the incorporation of automobiles, um, motorcycles, and the like, um, and so you've got police officers literally patrolling in these new new um, 
new modes of transportation, kind of horses are going by the wayside and the incorporation of automobiles and that kind of technology. And this is part of, of this kind of policing mentality that if you are visible, uh, that will decrease the likelihood that someone will engage in a criminal activity, right? However, they define criminal activity uh, because they know that the police are around, right? They are, they are kind of omnipresent. So if you do it, you're not going to get away with it. At least that's the idea behind this kind of massive show of police presence. And in many ways, that, that's still the idea. Uh, behind policing, right? Make make people feel like you are omnipresent. And then if anybody has uh, an impulse to maybe go and commit a crime, they will think twice because they know that the police are everywhere and will in some way, shape or form, track them down and find them. Um, so that's really one of the things that that, that police departments are, are trying to focus on, uh, this kind of idea of being omnipresent and visible. Um, and, and in an effort to try and maintain some of this control. In terms of being more effective, now this is probably something that, that people could push back against a little bit because effective uh, is kind of a vague term, right? It could mean different things to different people. Uh, but if you look at a couple of metrics, which I tried to point out in the book, uh, at least in terms of arrests, now that doesn't necessarily mean successful prosecution or anything like that, but at least in terms of making an arrest in, in reported cases uh, of, say, homicide, um, at least in the terms of, of African-Americans who are reporting homicides to, to the police, they make an arrest or clear a case in well over 50% of the cases uh, throughout the 1920s, 1930s, and into the 1940s. In some cases, they're as high as 70, 80% uh, of cases that are reporting to or, or are reported to the police uh, are ending in an arrest. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean a prosecution or a successful prosecution, um, but from the police officer's perspective, a cleared case is a cleared case, and that, that counts as a Success. So they're becoming more effective in some ways, um, but, but perhaps, you know, facing new challenges uh, in terms of the larger goal of kind of maintaining order in these kind of growing and, and diversifying urban spaces. Um, but I think it's also important to point out, and this is something I, I, I do consistently in the book, that their, their successes, at least in terms of clearance rates, and particularly in clearance rates in cases involving African-Americans, aren't necessarily just indicative of kind of diligent police officer work. Um, instead, what I argue is that this is actually um, largely because African-Americans do so much to make sure that police officers can make an arrest. So if you kind of think through uh, what happens when a crime is reported, right? Someone sees something happen. Let's say it's a homicide. Someone sees someone get killed. Someone has to call the police, right? Someone has to alert authorities to the fact that this happened, or maybe on the off chance, uh, a police officer is kind of walking around and stumbles across a, a body lying in the streets somewhere. But more often than not, uh, someone reports that to the police. And so I argue, at least in the case of African-Americans, um, this is is kind of an important moment, right? This is, this is African-Americans inviting police officers into their communities saying, hey, there was a crime. We want you to come in and investigate it. Uh, and that's what that, that initial reporting uh, is indicative of. But then if you think after that, right, like, most of police work is not like what people see on TV, right? It's not, it's not like they always come in and they search for DNA and they happen to find this one thing and then they run it through this robust computer system that, that connects the DNA evidence to the specific person and they can find them. Um, 
policing, particularly in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, is kind of, of as I said, haphazard. Um, so a lot of what they rely on are witness testimony. And so what I documented in, in my book is just the hundreds of, of African Americans who come forward and act as witnesses in these cases uh, and provide police with basically all the things they will need to make an arrest. They are supplying them with the names of people involved. They supply them uh, with descriptions of people if they don't necessarily know who, who uh, a suspect was. They will let them know where they live. Sometimes they ride around with police officers and point out suspects to them. Um, in other cases, they they capture suspects, call the police, and wait for a police officer to show up. So uh, there's 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 kind of two things going on here. One is maybe the police are becoming more responsive because of the increased technology and the desire to make it look like they are doing something um, to help reduce criminal activity in these urban spaces in the South. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's, it's, it's the clearance rates in particular are indicative of African-Americans efforts to try to rid their own communities uh, of crime and violence and using the police as a vehicle to, to potentially do that. Um, but kind of going above and beyond and ensuring that police have everything they could possibly need to make an arrest because they don't want to leave anything up to chance and hope that, well, they just report something and the police will do these diligent investigations and they will end in an arrest um, because of their own work. So I think this is kind of this really interesting um, kind of moment where you've got the police officers doing one thing, but it's really um, that they are relying on these black communities and white communities too, to do the bulk of, of investigative work, right? Provide them with all the information that they would need um, to, to make sure that a case is cleared and ends in an arrest. Now, I think you've just alluded to this, but I want to sort of dig a bit deeper. You've, you've just said that, and this came through in the book, that African-American people actually worked with the police to enforce or with the impact, the result of sort of the enforcement or regeneration of Jim Crow social order. What I want to understand is why would African-American people actually work with the police um, in, with this effect? Yeah, that's a really good question. And this is actually what drew me to this project in the first place. Um, when I f first entered the PhD program, I was just looking through these homicide reports that I got from the Memphis Police Department. And I was trying to come up with a project idea. Um, again, I was originally going to compare like rates of, of kind of lynching and homicides and assaults and see if there was any correlation. But as I was reading through these reports, I just saw again and again, um, there were these lines in the, the official police report, and it would say who reported the crime. Um, and they would have a name and then they'd have a little C next to that name, which indicated it was an African-American person. Um, and then I'd look at the witness list and they would list these names and they would have little C's next to them also. And this wasn't just a one-off. This was something that, that I saw again and again and again and again. And so in my mind, everything I knew about policing in the Jim Crow South in particular um, was really and rightfully negative, right? The Jim Crow criminal justice system is put in place to deny African-Americans kind of full equality um, and to enforce these, these racial restrictions that are being imposed upon them by white Southerners. So um, why in the world would, would African-Americans call the police and report a crime, right? That's, that's, that's the question that I wanted to answer. Um, and so the conclusion that I came to throughout the course of, of looking into these things in a number of different um, crime scenarios is that African-Americans, unsurprisingly, just like most people, are concerned about crime and violence in their own communities. Um, and I'm not saying all of them 
intimately trusted police departments. They, they undoubtedly did not because they knew of the negative consequences that policing could bring, at least policing under a Jim Crow regime could bring into their communities. But at the same time, where else do they turn when, when they see a crime, right? When someone they know has been killed, when someone they know has been robbed, when they've been robbed, when they've been assaulted. And so there's really nowhere else for them to go um, other than calling the police. Um, And so I think that's what you really see playing out here. African-American communities are concerned with crime and violence. They turn to the one institution that is supposedly responsible for eliminating crime and violence in their communities. Um, But I'll say this too. African-Americans aren't aren't engaging in these interactions with police officers. They're not calling police officers and acting as witnesses um, naively. They they fully understand uh, the role that they need to play in these cases because they know that police officers, again, are not really there for their benefit. They're there to maintain Jim Crow. And so they they engage in all of these, these activities that are designed to kind of acquiesce to police authority or at least send a signal that that they accept police authority. And, and I argue that calling the police is the first step in this process of kind of manipulating the police into doing something that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise do. You kind of signal to them by calling, I recognize your authority to come in and investigate these criminal activities, acting as a witness, right? You, you are kind of signaling to the police that, that you are willing to work with them, not in opposition to them and, and, and acquiescing um, or at least acknowledging their, their authority in these interactions. Um, in some cases, African-Americans riding around with, with, police officers, while I didn't find direct evidence of, of, kind of where they sat in the car, but you can kind of assume they're sitting in the back of the automobile, um, which would be an expectation, right, in the Jim Crow South, but also signifying uh, that they accept their authority. Uh, and so they're, they're, they're kind of working with a really problematic institution because it is one of the only institutions that is available for them to work with. Now, the kind of larger kind of consequence of all of this is that these police forces are are growing and expanding and becoming the kind of recognized law enforcement agencies in these urban spaces, um, which is problematic for African-Americans because the police become the enforcers of the Jim Crow system um, and become more effective and and violent in doing that over time. Uh, So African-Americans are really in a tough spot. Who else do you turn to? They're kind of forced to turn to an institution that is also making their lives more problematic and it creates a real conundrum. But I think the kind of way that they try to work within the system and improve the system, right, through through reforming the police, making the police serve black communities better, uh, is indicative of the fact that they don't necessarily accept the police as is, uh, as a legitimate institution. And so part of my book covers how African-Americans are writing about crime and policing and how they're responding to to issues of crime and policing in their own communities. Um, and they, they make a demand for more police in their communities, but the caveat is they also want better policing in their communities, more equitable, equitable policing in their communities. They want suspects treated the same uh, as white suspects would be treated. They want victims, importantly, treated the same as white victims would be treated. And so I think you've got Again, these these two things playing out at the same time, a kind of recognition that the police are a flawed um, institution, at least from the perspective of, of equitably serving black communities. Uh, but also it's the only institution that that they can really turn to um, in the wake of a criminal activity. So it's trying to like make a, 
an incredibly problematic institution serve your community as best you can. So then in your assessment, would you say that African-Americans were actually able to influence the police as an institution? Yeah, at least try. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I mean, some of the things that really struck me was some of the evidence that came out. It was such a detailed um, study uh, and it was really vivid as well. Like, for example, you wrote about how some perpetrators actually surrendered themselves to the police. Um, it seems counterintuitive. Why would, you know, why would someone do this sort of thing? <laughs> yeah, again, this is what, what, what just drew me to this project as I was going through these homicide reports. Um, there's numerous examples, that, at least in the case of homicides, I think um, between 20 and 40% of every black person who was accused of committing a homicide surrendered themselves to police. Um, which again, Jane, as you just pointed out, why in the world would you do that? Especially everything we know about the relationship between police and African-Americans and like coming into police departments in the 1920s and 1930s. This is like uh, when the third degree or like this, this kind of police torture is really being used as a, as, as a tactic to extract confessions. It just seems really, really problematic. Um, and so what I argue in the book when, when we see these cases of surrenders, uh, is that this is part of the African-American effort to kind of shape the way that police understand events, how they understand crimes and shape the narrative in a way that would and, and shape the process in a way that would be as favorable as possible to the person who is suspected of a crime. So, for instance, you can kind of imagine this playing out. Someone is accused of killing someone else. Um they sit there and wait for the police to show up. And when the police show up, they say, hey, I d- yes, I killed this person, but I did it in self-defense, right? So kind of before the police ever have the opportunity to engage and, and interview other witnesses, the suspect is already crafting a narrative, whether rightly or wrongly, about what happened, kind of shaping police perspectives of what happened. If you are a suspect um, in a homicide case and you surrender, well, maybe that suggests that your claims of self-defense are more legitimate um, than someone who fled and was arrested arrested by the police later making those self-defense claims. Many people who surrendered to the police um, had an attorney present. So if they fled initially, uh, there are numerous cases where they show back up with an attorney. And this is really important if you know anything about the criminal justice system, right? Um, Having that attorney there to help protect you from police overreach, police abuse, police manipulation um, was vitally important as well. And so what I think you see playing out here is just African-Americans being relatively in tune with how the criminal justice system was supposed to work um, and and the problems that they could potentially face when having to interact with it. Uh, and so even when they, they are suspected of really problematic crimes, a homicide, still having the kind of mental awareness to recognize that, that there are ways in which they can try to make the system work that in, in, in ways that could be to their own individual benefit, whether they were guilty or not, right? Crafting this narrative about what happened, making sure that, that they are not the victim of police abuse, manipulation, violence while, while, while being interrogated um, and the like. And so I think that's what you see playing out here uh, with this, this kind of odd situation where someone who is accused of a crime surrenders themselves to the the incredibly racist and problematic um, Southern police departments. Um, I think it's all part of this this broader understanding that African-Americans have about how the police departments function in a Jim Crow society and attempting to make this incredibly problematic system work in some way, shape or form a little bit better for themselves. 
Mm. And so, I mean, you've just talked about homicide, but I want to make sure that we also talk about some of the other crimes um, that you focus on in the book. Um, so moving next to property crimes, can you tell me, you know, is there sort of some commissurate pattern between homicide and property theft complaints? And what can you tell me about policing and property theft in this period? Yeah, so property crime was a big issue in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s, as it probably is all the time, right? But people um, having something of their own stolen. Uh, and this this is something that concerned white residents, it concerned black residents. Um, and it's something that, that the police are not very good at, at clearing, right? Solving. Typically when, when something gets stolen, you'll probably never see it again. Um, and this is particularly true in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, but there were a couple of really interesting things that stood out to me when I was looking at these police reports and newspaper reports, um, about property theft. Um, one, the African-Americans um, who were victims of property crimes were were engaging with police officers in much the same way that witnesses were engaging with police officers in the wake of a homicide, right? They are, they are calling the police. They are, they are finding the police and reporting these crimes. They are acting as witnesses. If they know someone who they think stole their stuff, they're pointing them out to the police. They're driving around with police officers and looking for suspects. So those, those patterns are there as well. But one of the things that really stood out to me in, in, in the property theft uh, is that the police actually were more effective at clearing cases that involved African-Americans than they were at clearing cases that involved white Southerners. And this is something that, that just kind of blew my mind. Um, and, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, I think it, it's, it's important to be incredibly clear. Um, African-Americans seemed pretty reticent to report property crimes to the police. So uh, I'm kind of taking this number from memory, but I think there was something like 90% of property crimes reported to the New Orleans Police Department from white people. Um, so somewhere between like eight and 10% were reported by African-Americans. Now we could assume that that that's not necessarily indicative of where property crimes were taking place and the number of property crimes that were taking place. I think what that's indicative of is African-Americans being a little um, less willing to report these property crimes to the police during this period. But I think um, the kind of differential in clearance rates, I mean, I again, I'm taking this from memory. I don't think there was a single year that I looked at where police officers cleared a higher percentage of white cases than they cleared black cases. So repeatedly, they are clearing black reported property crimes at a higher rate um, than they are white reported property crimes. And I think this, again, is not necessarily indicative of diligent police work um, or, or a kind of willingness by police officers to go above and beyond for the black communities, because, again, that's that's not really their, their role um, in, in this urban environment in the Jim Crow South. Instead, what I think this is indicative of is African-Americans going above and beyond um, to make sure that when they report a property crime to the police, they have as much evidence as they possibly could to deliver to the police to make sure that they can find the person who who stole or at least who, who they, they think stole their stuff um, and make an arrest in that case. And so I think the reason that that the number, or at least the percentage of African-Americans reporting property crimes was so low is they seemed less likely to report crimes to the police when they knew absolutely nothing about it. 
Um, so for instance, if you come home and you notice that, that your apartment has been ransacked and you're missing some a wallet or something, right? Um, something of value to you. And you talk to your neighbors and they say, I didn't really see anything. I don't really know anything that's going on. And you don't really know anything about what happened. Uh, it seemed like African-Americans, at least based on the reports that I looked at, were less likely to report cases to the police when they knew absolutely nothing about what happened, when they had nothing to really give them. The white residents seemed more willing to call the police anyway and say, hey, something has been stolen. I need you to come and, and see what you can do. Um, and I think that's indicative of the trust that white residents and black residents had or did not have in the police to do their jobs um, effectively for those respective communities. Uh, and so I think that's why those those rates are so much higher. African-Americans recognizing that there is a, a problem calling police if you have absolutely nothing to deliver to them. Why would you invite this kind of potential scrutiny into your life by the police if you have no real evidence to supply to them to to hopefully get some of your stolen stuff back or at least make an arrest of someone who, who you believe stole your stuff? Uh, so they seem less likely to do that when they know nothing. When when they do know something, that's when they're making these calls and that's when they're reaching out to police departments. And I think that's why you see those rates um, being in some cases significantly higher, those clearance rates significantly higher than they are for the white communities because African-Americans are, are only really reporting these cases when they, they have kind of concrete evidence that they can deliver to the police to make sure that they make an arrest. So again, much like in homicides, you've got this, this example uh, of, of what we could look at just at the surface level as police officers success and serving a black community. What I argue is that it's kind of the flip side, right? African-Americans are, are kind of making the police serve their community um, and making the police look like they are effectively serving the community or at least more effectively serving the community. But it's really just African-Americans engaging in, in, in all of the investigative work that you would assume police officers would do on the front end before they even make contact with law enforcement officers. Um, and so that's one of the really fascinating things about the theft cases. Um, the trends are the same in terms of contacting police, interacting with the police, but it's those clearance rates that I think a lot of readers will really, especially if you're familiar with the Jim Crow South, uh, that readers will really find surprising. Um, and then that just kind of prompts more and more questions. Why were these rates better? Um, was this effective policing or is this really the result of African-Americans kind of doing more work on the front end before they ever even contact law enforcement? And I think this was a theme that also came through in the chapter about assaults. Um, so you just said that, you know, African-Americans were very good at making the police serve their community. How did this play out in context of reporting assaults and disputes between African-Americans? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd say they were very good at making the police serve their community, but they're certainly deploying a number of strategies to try and kind of extract a service from an institution that is probably less than, than excited to provide them with that service. Um, so whether or not they're they're incredibly effective is, is, is up for debate, but um, it's more about the process to me, right? Their willingness to try to extract this service. Uh, assaults were were kind of interesting and, and a little bit more difficult to to kind of pin down. Most assaults are not reported to law enforcement. 
Um, so, you know, it's hard to track trends. Um, but a couple of things kind of stood out to me when, when assaults were reported, right? The same processes and the same patterns are there, right? You have African-Americans who are reaching out to law enforcement to report a potential assault um, or an alleged assault. You have them kind of gathering evidence, witnesses coming forward and talking to the police, pointing them in, in the direction of, of people who were suspected of assaults. Um, but one of the really fascinating things to me was the role that that kind of law enforcement played in in kind of domestic violence um, in black communities. Um, domestic violence in black communities and white communities in the Jim Crow South was a problem um, and, and a problem that police were not terribly effective at handling. Um, but one of the things that came out in in the chapter on on police investigations and assaults is the ways in which black women proved really effective or or at least demonstrated a willingness to kind of use the threat of policing to to kind of negotiate their problematic relationships with abusive spouses. Um, so there's there's a number of examples that came out in grand jury testimony um, that I use from from Birmingham, uh, where where black women are kind of recounting what happened in these these domestic uh, assault cases, um, and and what became clear to me is that the threat of contacting the police or actually contacting the police was was one of the strategies that black women utilized to try and de-escalate um, potentially violent or, or kind of increasingly violent situations with, with their significant others. Um, so for instance, if you could kind of imagine how um, an argument between spouses is kind of unfolding, right? Um, something is getting heated, perhaps they're arguing over something small initially, um, dinner not being ready or or not being to the satisfaction of of the husband right um and so an argument starts and perhaps drinking is involved in a lot of these assault cases and and this is true for white and black communities drinking is involved um so this 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 kind of argument is escalating people are coming becoming more and more heated um and it seems like violence is, is 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 kind of increasingly likely um many black women would say you know I'm going to call the police, right? And they pick up the phone and and they they you know dial the police. Well, at this point, in many cases, uh, the the significant other would flee, right? The the abusive spouse would get out of there, right? The threat of potentially being arrested by law enforcement was enough to, in that moment, de-escalate that situation. In some cases, um, and 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 get the the potentially abusive spouse, or particularly if the spouse had a history of of kind of violent interactions with um, their 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 wives. They leave the situation, right? They leave the situation, uh, and perhaps that that staved off uh, a potentially violent episode. Um, but black women are using the police and, and kind of law enforcement more broadly um, in other ways too. Sometimes it's the threat of the police saying, "I'm going to call the cops if if you don't leave here right now." Sometimes it is actually calling the cops and making sure that 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 potentially abusive spouse leaves the apartment, leaves the house in that moment. Uh, but other times, black women want an arrest to be made, um, and and this actually provides them with the time and the space to to leave um, violent marriages to leave violent relationships um 
because an arrest has been made and someone is sitting in jail for a couple of days, maybe even a couple of years, if if the arrest leads to a prosecution um, and a jail term. Uh, and so those are just a couple of the ways that I, I came across to see how, how black women in particular were using law enforcement to kind of serve their own interests, um, not necessarily because they trusted law enforcement or they thought that the police represented uh a kind of generally good thing in their communities. They knew the problems that police posed for black communities. And in many ways, that's why the threat of calling them was so effective, right? Um, in these, these, these really heated moments. Um, but in other respects, they know that, that if they can provide the police with evidence that, that, uh, an assault has taken place. Um, this might provide them them with an opportunity to extricate their, their themselves from an abusive relationship in a way that mitigates the potential for violence as they're trying to do so. Um, so again, this is just one other example uh, of the ways in which Black communities are finding ways to extract a service from an institution, the police, that wasn't necessarily designed to serve Black communities, but instead designed to kind of oppress and and, uh, impress Jim Crow upon these Black communities, they're coming up with ways to kind of extract a service um, from from an otherwise seemingly reticent institution. And I think that's that's one of the main takeaways that I hope people get from this book. African-Americans' willingness to engage with law enforcement is not necessarily indicative of the fact that they think law enforcement uh, are, are a fantastic institution, that they think the police are actually there to serve their neighborhoods. But in fact, it's, it's kind of indicative of a willingness to make police better serve their neighborhoods and their communities or themselves individually. Yeah, and I do think that that absolutely came through, that um, African-Americans did use the police um, to an extent to sort of serve their communities as best they could. But, of course, another of the themes that came through, and you have mentioned violence before, but that it wasn't or it didn't all go one way. So um, on the one hand, while African-Americans were able to use the police to target Elise and clear up some of the time in their, sorry, some of the crimes in their urban communities, um, the police were actually really brutal can you tell me about some what your data reflected about police brutality and their use of violence in sort of maintaining social order? Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's a really good question and a point that I bring up consistently throughout the book. Um, so one of the things I really struggled with when writing this book is I didn't want people to be able to just kind of quickly read this and say, oh, the police weren't that bad. Uh, look, how African-Americans are engaging with them. That is certainly not the argument I'm making. I'm, I'm in agreement with any number of scholars who have looked at policing um, and particularly policing of black communities and identified that that the police are used as a tool of, of black oppression uh, and violence as part and parcel of, of how they achieve those goals. Um, and one of the really fascinating things about police violence over the course of the period that I studied, the 1920s and into the 1930s and 40s, um, is is even police violence kind of undergoes a couple of changes. Um, kind of police violence in the streets, um, in public, kind of shooting um, out out in public settings uh, was certainly present in the 1920s and it's present in the 1930s and into the 1940s. Uh, but really what, what we also begin to see, at least in terms of trends in the 1920s and 1930s, is kind of police violence moving into the police station, right? Kind of behind closed doors. And this is something I alluded to earlier called the third degree. Um, police officers using basically 
torture tactics to extract confessions uh, from from suspects. And in, in, in the case of my study, black suspects um, and other scholars, um, Jeff Adler being one, they they have tracked these changes and, and the use of the third degree um, and argued that police violence is becoming increasingly racialized. The third degree is becoming increasingly racialized. It is something that that, that is being used overwhelmingly um, with black suspects. Um, and not necessarily white suspects. Um, and so kind of police violence was, was present. Again, it's always there. Um, but one of the fascinating things that that I, I try to tease out a little bit is how police violence is, is in some ways moving indoors and kind of moving behind closed doors in those police stations. So away from public scrutiny, um, the violence and the terror is still there, especially for those suspects. And if you can think about how, how this is kind of percolating um, and circulating throughout black communities, um, black America Americans know what happens inside these police stations. Um, it is not a safe space. It is not a place where you can can expect to have your rights protected, but instead you're incredibly vulnerable to police um, interrogation tactics that regularly incorporate violence as a means to extract confessions. Um, but even the use of public violence, again, is, is there. It's present. And as I suggested earlier, most cases where a white person in the South kills a black person in the South, it is it is law enforcement. Um, and so you, you really see the police kind of assuming the role of, of violent or perpetrators of violence uh, against black communities in ways that that maybe have always been there, but but weren't necessarily their their kind of sole um, responsibility. And in, in the 1890s, you had white communities taking violence into their own hands, right, in the form of lynching at its most extreme level and doing it regularly and doing it routinely. By the 1920s and 1930s, we see less and less of that and more and more of of police officers being the main perpetrators of violence uh, against African-Americans. And again, this is part and parcel of what policing was supposed to accomplish um, in the Jim Crow South and the United States more broadly, maintain these institutions uh, of, of racial division, of, of racial control, uh, and maintain this racial hierarchy at, at, at any cost. And violence was, was one of those things that was utilized routinely and regularly to make sure African-Americans didn't really get out of place, uh, but also demonstrate the powerlessness that African-Americans uh, had in their interactions with law enforcement I, I came across no examples uh, of a police officer being criminally prosecuted because of the violence they used against African-Americans, particularly lethal violence, um, really no cases of that happening. And so, again, it is just indicative of what police officers could get away with. Uh, and this is something that African-Americans have to to consistently keep in their minds as they are interacting with the police in the myriad ways that I point out in the several chapters in my book, when they're calling the police, when they're acting as witnesses, when they're turning over evidence, when they're capturing suspects and turning them over to the police at the forefront of, of, of their mind in all of these interactions and, and, and in all of these behaviors is this could potentially turn violent at any point in time because we know this happens routinely for policing. So this is something that, that, that kind of um, is, is omnipresent in all of these interactions. So even if it's not the actual act of violence, it is the threat of the act of violence uh, that, that, that kind of permeates all of these interactions. And I think in many ways, 
shapes the way that African-Americans engage with police officers, even when they're not a suspect, even when they're not accused of a crime and they are reporting crimes or acting as a witness, uh, that threat of violence is always there. So it is it is part and parcel of policing. It becomes an important part uh, of, of how police officers do their jobs, especially maintaining a kind of subordinate status for African-American communities more broadly uh, and just imposing their authority um, on individual African-Americans throughout the Jim Crow period. And then I guess my next question is, that to the extent that uh, police violence was institutionalised, can you comment on the degree to which modern methods and practices in policing have been inherited and involved from these Jim Crow institutions and laws? Yeah, you know, one of the, the really depressing things about looking at policing in the Jim Crow period, like I did, and, you know, re- reading these newspaper reports um, and editorials, and then looking at today is, you know, the complaints are shockingly similar. The complaints of black residents uh, in 1930s New Orleans are shockingly similar to the complaints that, that African-American communities and other communities are leveling against the police right now. Right. It's kind of uh, abuse of power, um, violence with with very little kind of repercussions uh, for for police officers that engage in in that kind of behavior um, and, and the kind of routine use of violence or the threat of violence um, largely against African-American communities. Uh, And so I'm not suggesting that absolutely nothing has changed. Uh, Of course it has. Policing is under more scrutiny now than it was in the 1930s. Um, There are avenues that, 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 we can take today that people in the Jim Crow period just couldn't take, at least in terms of filing complaints. There's citizen review boards in a lot of cities, not all cities, um, but that's that that's a tool that people can use to um, hold officers accountable for engaging in problematic interactions and violent interactions with the communities that they are supposed to serve. Um, but I think anyone who who reads through my book and any other works on policing in the early 20th century will recognize that the patterns are there. Um, the complaints are there. The efforts to reform police kind of as an institution are there in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Um, and other works have documented how, how they are there too in the 1950s, 60s, and into the 1970s. And so when I was trying to craft the the conclusion to the book, this was right that summer of 2020, um, where where protests against policing um, are maybe at their 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 peak. Um, this is this is right on on the heels of the George Floyd case and the video kind of circulating across the world. So I was really thinking, like, what is it that 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 my book and my arguments has to say about this? And I think one of the the things I I wanted readers to leave with is, you know, yes, this is an interesting study, I think, of the Jim Crow period and the ways in which African-Americans were interacting with law enforcement. Um, and I think that's 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 fresh insight and something that scholars haven't really pointed out or engaged with. Uh, but I also think it's indicative of the efforts that African-Americans have gone to, um, dating back at least a century, to try and kind of make the police better serve their communities, right? Kind of reform the police as an institution, work through the police to make them better serve African-American communities. And I think that's the really frustrating thing for many Americans, but, but Black Americans in particular, what happened to George Floyd was not an aberration, right? This is something that has been part and parcel of policing of Black communities, 
for at least a century, if not longer, uh, and efforts to reform the police. And this is where, where these calls for you know defunding the police, the abolition of the police, um, I think are really growing out of, right? Efforts to reform the police. African-Americans have been engaging in these. And, and, and I, I would argue in the 1930s and 1940s, good faith efforts to make the police serve their communities better, more equitably, less violently. And routinely, it has come to naught, right? It hasn't worked. Um, and so for, for many people who are calling for the abolition of the police or the defunding of the police or radical changes to the way that public safety is, is handled in the United States, this isn't just a knee-jerk reaction to what happened to George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or any number of African-Americans that have been, been killed by the police. But this is a, a, a recognition of the failures of reform efforts through the police, right? Efforts to kind of change policing to make it better serve communities and, and engage less violently have seemingly not had the desired result. Because again, if you look at the complaints of the 1920s, they are very similar, if not identical to the point, the complaints uh, of 2020. Uh, and so I think that's, that's, that's what I hope people can, can take away from my book when they're trying to connect it to something to the present. Um, African-Americans, whether they are the NAACP, or it is editorialists in black newspapers, or it is local civil rights organizations, or individual African Americans, they have tried for at least a century to work through this institution, work through the police uh, to make it serve these black communities more equitably, less violently, and better, right? Be a public safety institution. But what we see is is police departments routinely falling back um, into the same patterns, the same use of, of violence and and brutality as a means to kind of maintain order and control uh, over historically and traditionally marginalized communities. Um, and so I think that's one of the really sad things about the state of policing today and the arguments that we have. Um, and the efforts of, of African-Americans a century ago is that I don't know if they necessarily have had the kind of impact that that we would hope they would have had. And so I think that's where where calls for things that are seemingly incredibly radical, right? Abolish the police uh, are rooted in. They're rooted in a recognition that for at least a century, efforts to reform police departments um, haven't really had the results we wanted. And so perhaps it's time we, we, in, we think about public safety in new ways that de-emphasize policing. Yeah, I think that's a really important takeaway. Um, I mean, in the last line of your book, you poignantly write, despite the diligent efforts of African-Americans, it has become glaringly obvious today that in myriad ways the police have failed black communities. Um, I'm just wondering, do you want to comment on that any further? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to recognize this too, that the police have a hard job, right? Individual police officers have a really tough job um, I, I've, I've often brought police officers into my class when I talk about the history of policing. And one of the things that always stands out to me and students, you know, they say every time I interact with someone, it's on the worst day of their lives, right? Um, they have either been the victim of something horrific um, or, you know, they're not happy to see me because I am, I am arresting them for something, right? And that's a really important thing, I think, for us to recognize about, about individual police officers is, you know, they have a really difficult, difficult job. And so, I don't want to be overly critical of those individuals, right? Like I recognize the tough situation that they've been placed in. And unfortunately in the United States, right? Like our social services um, aren't funded at the level that they probably should be to adequately kind of serve communities um, that, that need the most help. Um, 
And so instead, it's the police that that we all have to rely on. That's really one of the the most visible and in some cases, the only social social service agency, if you could call it that, uh, that is available to people. So they have a tough job um, to do. But I think in terms of the, the failures of policing to adequately address the issues of public safety, right, um, they... They, they, as an institution, right, have utterly failed um, to, to achieve those goals, right, to protect and serve, to, to minimize instances of violence, to um, reduce drug use, to, to do all the things that, that, that we assume policing is supposed to do. Instead, we have created institutions that, that are largely reactive, right? They are institutions um, that will come in and make, re- make arrests after um crimes have already been committed. Um, we've militarized the police to where there, there are levels of distrust between the communities and the police officers um, that, that would make any kind of public safety efforts really difficult to achieve. Uh, and so I think that's what I was trying to get at with that, that, that last point, right? Like policing as, and, and the police as Americans have constructed them, have failed to to adequately address the problems that they have been tasked with addressing, and they are difficult problems to solve. Um, but but that was one of the things I really was was, was trying to get across is that um, policing as as we've constructed it hasn't been able to solve those problems. So perhaps it's time we begin thinking about other ways um, that we can either assist the police or think about public safety um, in ways that reduce policing um, and promote other kinds of of social service agencies to hopefully achieve um, the larger goals of creating healthier, more sustainable um, and engaged communities.